Kia ora koutou. Welcome to the New Zealand General Practice Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Joe Scott-Jones. Earlier seasons of this podcast focused on joy in practice. This season is an opportunity to listen in on monthly conversations I have with Dr. Dave Mapleston, organized for the Pinnacle GP Network. Dave shares insights into important clinical changes he picks up in his reading as a part-time GP and advisor to the Health and Disability Commissioner. I hope you enjoy. I'm here for the clinical snippets with Dave Mapleston. Dave, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, Morena Tato. I'm uh, Dave Mapleston, GP in Hamilton or based in Hamilton. I do quite a bit of work for the Health and Disability Commissioner. So aim with some of my um, snippets to look at complaints I've had and how maybe refreshing knowledge can keep one out of that situation. And yeah, particular interest in educating me month by month. Thank you very much, Dave. I look forward to these conversations. The, um, should we launch into it? Yeah, I think the the first one, it's a perennial uh, topic, which is assessing capacity. But I just had a complaint in recently, which I think perfectly illustrates the the risks associated with that that request from somebody to um, assess capacity of a of a relative, usually, and most commonly in relation to complete uh, completing enduring power of attorney or activating enduring power of attorney forms. Uh, and in this case, the was slightly different in that the patient wanted to change their EPOA for finances. The GP deemed them not capable of making that change or lacking capacity to make that change. Uh, And the situation was this uh, very difficult. A patient, uh, a younger person, a younger male, it was a female patient, a younger male who had a reputation in the town for being a criminal, essentially had shacked up with this older lady and it appeared that he was manipulating her. So I could see the GP's uh, reason of wanting to to protect the patient, but the patient complained about the fact that she hadn't been assessed properly and that she didn't lack capacity. Uh, And in fact, the GP had not seen the patient specifically in relation to signing the capacity form, Uh, had had a nurse do a mini ACE, which was actually significantly down at, at 12 or 13, but that certainly isn't enough to say the patient lacks capacity um, for the task. So just really reminding that the the key practice points in terms of of assessing capacity is essentially a person's presumed to have capacity to make a decision unless there are good reasons to doubt this presumption. So the exception to that is the end-of-life choice act where they're deemed to not have capacity unless you prove that they have but in all other cases, you've got to assume the patient has capacity and you, you're basically wanting to prove that they don't. And in general, the capacity is assessed with respect to a specific decision at a specific time. So in this case, it relates to does this patient know what the repercussions are of altering her EPOA for, or altering her EPOA for finances? Um, does she understand what the EPOA does, et cetera, et cetera? So decisions specific to that request that she, or, or the circumstances in which you're um, deciding on capacity. Um, and the assessment of a person's ability to make a decision, uh, sorry, is of their ability to make the decision, not the decision they make. Yes. So that they're entitled to in law to make unwise or imprudent decisions, provided they have the capacity to make the decision. So in this case, you might be asking, you know, do you think um, that it's safe to have somebody you've only just met to take over your finances, etc. What might happen? You know, how, how would you feel if they 
stole all your money or whatever. Yeah. Um, and see if they have a uh, an understanding of that. So you can't you can't say they lack capacity because they are being apparently naive and and having this person come in and potentially manipulate their finances. And finally, the supported decision making involves doing everything possible to maximise the opportunity for a person to make a decision for themselves. So the idea is really you want to be promoting their independence because you know losing capacity is a very significant um, has a very significant impact on that patient so it's a, it's a very significant decision and the procedures need to take to consider tikanga maori and cultural diversity so there is a legal test for capacity which is around understanding the nature of this decision and appreciating the significance for the individual retaining the information um, for a time required to make the decision using or weighing the the information as part of the decision making and communicating the decision either verbally or in writing or by some other means yeah uh, and certainly uh, just doing a mini ace even if it's abnormal is not sufficient to say a patient lacks capacity for the uh, not sufficient alone to say the patient lacks capacity for the decision that's um that's been considered it doesn't really assess many of those things it potentially helps to assess retention of information but it's not retention of relevant information is it? that's right that's right um, so it's not purpose it's not purpose specific it's yeah. or, or situation specific so my my hints really are First of all, make sure you have access to a toolkit for assessing capacity, which is a publication put out by the Law Foundation. Very um, user-friendly, um, available online. Almost inevitably, when when or very often, when there's a request to to test a patient for capacity, there's a background or a hint of family dysfunction or uh, things going on. So, if there's if you have any doubts whatsoever, I'd suggest consulting with your medical indemnity person before carrying out an assessment uh, if there's any hint of dysfunction or or issues like, you know in particular this in this case i think it was a very complex situation it would have been helpful to have had some input from mps or whoever so i think yeah talk it for assessing capacity i've put links to that in the snippets uh, and there are a couple of good um, good filler unit online courses which i've also put links to together with the appropriate forms for activating epoa which must be completed and the final hint really is to document everything. So yeah. even the, it's a bit like when you when you have to commit somebody under the Mental Health Act, it's helpful to document, you know, some of the responses that they give you to questions verbatim to illustrate their psychosis or whatever. And I think the same thing applies here, that the more 
supporting information you have um, documented on which you based your opinion, the safer you are in terms of repercussions. Yeah, I laugh because, you know, documentation is a, is a common theme to these talks, Dave. Um, well, I think it's, I, again, I, I'd hate to think you've got to practice medicine defensively all the time and, the, and that documentation is solely for defence. But, you know, I, I think, again, you want to be, you don't want to be in the situation where you're having to justify a decision and, and you don't have the evidence behind them. Um, and and, and absolutely, this has got to be an area of significant inquiry at least from from family and from other other concerned people you know what was the rationale how did you come to this decision which allowed this to um this then that these unreasonable decisions to be made by the patient you can sense the concern from the community and from family members um when people like imagining this particular case you know, the, the, there's a step there that hopefully would protect the person from this behaviour. But if they're making that decision, uh, uh, even though it is an irrational decision, if they're capa capable of doing it, then that's that. That's exactly uh, right. Decision, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it becomes becomes almost more an, a potential elder abuse situation. Um, mm -hmm. But I think because of the because of the complexity of it, it was you know I think the probably the, the error the practitioner made was not seeking legal advice before going ahead and um, uh, completing the forms, but all done, you know, in the best interest or the perceived best interest of the patient, obviously. Yeah. I'm a, a provider of assisted dying services and we're doing this at test for capacity all of the time. And again, it's really, really important to document the detail of how people are weighing up the decision, the pros and the cons, and detailing what their understanding is um, verbatim, I think has been has been really really important. But I'll have a look at that toolkit for assessing capacity as well. Uh, no, really valuable resource. That yeah. so, uh, but moving from the brain to the cervix. Okay, the, this is slightly uh, old old hat now because for the last two weeks the HPV testing has become the primary cycle oh. screening test in New Zealand. Terribly old hat, <laughs> but um, you're two weeks old. Yeah, um, but it's really just to provide some links to resources for all practice staff. Really, um, so the National Cycle Screening Programs released a, a second information pack that contains information on training and responsibility changes for clinical and admin staff involved in the screening process. I've put links to all those resources in the snippets, but the key points are that from mid-September, only primary care clinicians who are accredited to perform cervical screening will be able to offer HPV testing, including offering self-testing. Uh, so this includes nurses and nurse practitioners who have completed NZQA training in cervical screening, as well as doctors and midwives. So it's a slightly ambiguous. My, my interpretation is that doctors and midwives are automatically regarded as accredited, but uh, staff other than doctors and midwives need to have completed the the relevant modules. Yeah. So the requirements to allow those not currently accredited to perform cervical screening to offer HPV testing are being developed by the National Screening Unit. Uh, and a summary of the required training for, this, for specific roles is included in, in this second lot of um, information that's been released. Uh, so there are four modules um, in the training program, uh, which is available at Learn Online, uh, and I've again I've put links uh, to those in the snippets. 
And the other warning was just be prepared for a potential increase in uptake of cervical screening due to funding for some groups and the ability to self-test. And I know that there's been some debates in primary care circles around um, variation in funding between to Fata Ora areas, um, mm. and it would be nice to have thought that maybe, given this was a new initiative, there could have been some national <clears throat> consistent funding, yeah. and, and consistent and adequate funding put out there. But um, anyway, uh, yeah, I think it's a it's a legacy impact of the the stage we're at with the health reforms, where you know it's very hard to reduce the funding in some areas that have had extra funding provided over and above what's been agreed nationally so which obviously nobody wants to see that happening um so yeah but it does create a lot of variation one of the things i i learned doing this um the courses and was the process of taking a swab an, an intravaginal swab which you know, in, involves inserting the swab about four centimeters, or I say the length of your thumb, um, into the vagina, and um, leaving it there for five seconds before taking it out, which is the same for taking self swabbing for um, STIs um, as well. But I'd have to say, I'd, it made me realize that what I've often said to people is here's a swab, do you know what to do with it? Um, if you can bring it back to me. <laughs> um, and people have said, yes, I know what to do with it. And I've sort of relied on their reading a leaflet that might be on the poster that's on the wall in the in the patient's toilet. Or it was just, I, I, sudden, I had this sudden realisation. Uh, for years I've been saying, here's a swab, do you know what to do with it to people? Which and, um, and I, and I shouldn't really say this talking to you, Danny, should I? It depends whether the um, the pamphlet on the on the wall includes the five second rule. Well, I don't think it does actually. When I was, yeah, it. Um, I think there's there's a, well, anyway. That it's was not, a, well, it's not long for me, time. and I would I'd encourage everybody to do the line. It doesn't matter whether you're a doctor, or midwife. You know, this is an area of um, where you think you know what you know. Uh, and it's whenever you think you know something, it's always good to do a little bit of self-education because you often find it you don't. Absolutely. And, and there is a link to um, there are a couple of good fellow unit webinars on the program also. But the um, learn online modules, I think, are the uh, probably the critical thing. Yeah. So from cervix back to brain, the pain areas of the brain, and this is mm. the Ministry of Health changes to opioid prescribing so there's been there's been a bit of a debacle around flip-flopping from three months um change from one month prescribing to three months prescribing for opioids and now back to one month prescribing um there have been some other changes so cabinet's made the decision to reduce the maximum limit for opioid prescriptions from three months to one month and this limit applies to both class b and class c opioids Right. which brings the prescribing limit for Class C, such as codeine and dihydrocodeine, in line with Class B. And there are additional regulation changes which will result in the reclassification of tramadol as a Class C2 controlled drug from 1st of October, uh, although it's exempt from the requirement to be stored in a controlled drug safe. But what it means is that the um, once the legislative changes are enacted, uh, which is later this year, I don't know if they've got a firm date for it, um, both codeine, DHC, and tramadol will have a one-month prescribing restriction, but there's an exception for methadone, which will be available as a three-month prescription when being used as part of the opioid substitution program. 
Does that mean tramadol will have to be prescribed on a controlled drug prescription as well? I, I'm pretty sure as a C2, it can, it doesn't, right. but it does, but it can only be prescribed for a month at a time. Yeah. But I, I may stand to be corrected on that one. Um, I think when the, when the fight, when the amended regulations come out, it'll be a bit more specific. I know that um, this is a cause of concern, but I think when people have chronic pain, then, you know, we, they do deserve very regular review and uh, and and pain management planning, and this is a significant drug of abuse despite the initial marketing. Agreed. I think the um, and again we talked about opioid prescribing previously, but just a, a, a shout out to the BPAC resource, which I think was released last year on opioid prescribing, which included um, patient contract forms, yeah. those sorts of things, just and, and just really helpful hints on how to manage your opioid prescribing for chronic non-malignant pain. Yeah. As we shift to more telehealth and uh, to cope with the workforce crisis, this becomes a, a really difficult problem to deal with. It's a very difficult consultation when it's a, a telehealth consultation. Now, um, uh, that's one reason why I haven't, <laughs> haven't expanded my repertoire to, um, to, to telehealth, because I'm just scared that it's going to be numerous patients wanting um oxycodone uh, that i've never met before and, and have to be reassured by you know this is my regular dose i think quite a number of the service providers just refuse to prescribe opioids via telehealth for, for, for exactly that reason um, but when you're supporting a practice which is temporarily closed because of or temporarily doesn't have a prescriber because of a workforce crisis um it's it, you're obviously going to have patients who are on opioids that need repeat prescription. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's a really difficult, a really difficult consultation to to, to deal with. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, One look. The reasons why they pay us the big bucks, Dave. Right. Look at Look at the uh, BPAC resource if, you've, if you want to be de-prescribing de or down-prescribing opioids and or not not having people on long-term opioids in the first place. Mm -hmm. Next one's uh, again come from a recent complaint I looked at, which was from a lady who was annoyed that she hadn't been warned of the risk of hypophosphatemia uh, associated with the iron infusion she had, and then that that um, her tiredness following the injection uh, hadn't been it had, hadn't been recognised as being possibly associated with low phosphate levels, which was the light, which was found to be the cause after some weeks. So just really a reminder, so there was a September 2021 New Zealand Doctor article, which I've linked to, which reviewed the whole topic of hypophosphatemia associated with iron infusion uh, therapy. Uh, it is more common with Ferinject than other formulations of iron infusion. Uh, and the recommendation was, despite this complaint, the recommendation was that testing of serum calcium and phosphate levels before iron, iron infusions should only be done for high-risk people, such as those with BMIs of less than 18, uh, if the person has chronic diarrhea or malnutrition, or if the patient is to receive a second iron infusion within six months. Uh, Health Pathways recommends seeking general medical advice if the pre-infusion phosphate is less than 0.8. Um, as treatment with calcitriol may be recommended. How do you know that somebody's going to have a second iron infusion within six months? That's right. I think I think if the idea would be in that case, if they are going to have a second iron infusion within six months because they, they haven't had an adequate response or whatever, you test the phosphate 
yeah. and calcium before that second infusion. So testing after an infusion is usually based on clinical symptoms. Uh, so the mean time to the to the, the trough of, of phosphate levels is usually between one and six weeks post-infusion. And most people recover within three months, but there are reports of occasional prolonged recovery times of up to two years, but that would require further investigation into other possible causes. And the clinical, clinical symptoms are pretty vague, uh, tiredness, weakness, and muscle pain. Join my world. That's right. So, uh, it's, um, yeah, they, they, they don't jump out as being particularly localizing. Treatments really with mild hypophosphatemia, which is 0.6 to 0.8, basically just um, recommending phosphate-containing foods. That's chicken, seafood, dairy, nuts and seeds, and whole grains. For moderate, which is 0.3 to 0.6, um, you can get phosphate tablets called phosphate febra, P-H-E-B-R-A, uh, doses in, BEEP, in um, New Zealand formulary and a reduced dose is needed if the EGFR is less than 60 or the higher doses aren't tolerated. That's usually with diarrhea or gastric irritation. And severe hypophosphatemia hyper less than 0.3 millimoles per litre, a referral for IV therapy is required. And during therapy, Obviously, for severe, we won't be dealing with the severe ones, presumably, but um, phosphate concentrations are checked every 24 to 72 hours in that case. Uh, for mild um, or moderate, uh, monitoring every one to two weeks until levels are back within the reference range. And if, the, if there seems to be a slow or inadequate response to therapy to check parathyroid hormone and vitamin D levels. Yeah. Do you know the prevalence or the incidence of this after... Uh, I don't think gave a figure in the New Zealand Doctor article. It is mentioned in the Health Pathways, so I presume it, it's significant enough to to warrant mention in in the clinical the various clinical pathways. So possibly in that case, it's significant enough to warrant mentioning in your um, pre-infusion discussion. Yeah. To, to say, you know, if you get, if you do feel tired, weak, or muscle pain after the infusion, you know, the, it, the do come in and don't, don't and if somebody comes in, don't just assume that the anemia hasn't resolved. Um, come in and let's check it out. And one of the things that we need to be thinking about is people's phosphate levels, which you know, I must say, aren't the top of mind when I'm seeing somebody. I mean, I'd, I'd be inclined someone coming in two weeks after an iron infusion saying they're really tired would be to say, oh, well. It's going to take more than two weeks to yes. get your hemoglobin up again, etc. Yeah. yeah, and it, but it does again. It illustrates. I I, I do worry that um, patients who've had previous iron infusions just think that the solution to their mild anemia next time is another iron infusion, and the, they sort of get into a, a bit of a role of it. There's sort of a, a because the you know it it works i don't want to take six weeks of iron tablets i get constipated i don't like the effect it has on my bowel motions and i feel indigestion and a bit nauseous while i'm taking my tablets you know the solution to that then is is, is an iron infusion which is not a mild you know it's not a it's not without its complications no i mean again i, I saw a complaint a couple of weeks ago with a photograph of a woman with a permanently black arm from a yeah from a um, tissued iron infusion. Yeah. And, and I certainly see, I'm seeing it used, as you say, much more commonly these days. I see it in, in notes that I'm looking at unrelated to the to the reason for the iron infusion uh, and less and less often that there's been any apparent discussion or option of oral 
treatment even discussed. It's just straight to the um, infusion side of things. Yeah. So, but as you say, not not entirely without risk, but you know, from the patient perspective, I guess it's it's a quick fix or quicker fix, as long as they're aware of the the risks and benefits. Yeah. Number five is just an update. Uh, issue seven of the GP practice review looked at a recent uh, meta-analysis comparing shorter, that's less than equal to five days versus longer treatment with antibiotics for children with community-acquired pneumonia. Uh, and essentially, five days is fine. There was no significant difference between short and longer courses of antibiotics uh, for clinical cure, treatment failure, relapse mortality risk, need to change antibiotic, need for hospitalization or serious adverse events. And the reviewer concluded that um, this gives further evidence that there's no benefit to be gained from longer courses of antibiotic treatment for many infections that are managed in the community. Uh, And in the case of pediatric community-acquired pneumonia, uh, shorter treatments of around five days should be recommended with the caregivers provided with education about the rationale, which may be counter to information they've previously received. Uh, but interestingly, the current health pathways and BPAC, current BPAC guidance still refers to a five to seven day course uh, of amoxicillin or a longer course for alternative antibiotics, seven days for erythromycin and seven to 10 days for roxithromycin. But I assume they will, you know, next time they're reviewed, they may change to be more in line with the with the evidence around the shorter courses. Yeah. Yeah, I've got to say that the this this leads to a slight tension in my work, which is I get the complaint from the patient saying, you know, the child still wasn't well after the five days of antibiotics, and they two days later they went to another GP and they were told it was far too short and they had to be given a, a you know a ten day course yeah. for their viral infection, which finally resolved. And you know, look at the at the health pathways or the BPAC guidance, you know. Um, if it doesn't, if it doesn't necessarily concur with international evidence, it's a, a slightly awkward position. But usually, I would look at both international evidence or the general evidence base uh, for the for the guidance to determine whether something's consistent with accepted practice or not. It's it's interesting, isn't it? Because those conversations about the shorter courses of antibiotics are often quite difficult. Patients have got an expectation if they're getting antibiotics. That it's going to be a seven or ten day course, and 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 as you say, if you say, well, you don't need them at all, even though you do have, you know, group A strep growing in your throat swab, or um, because you just don't meet the criteria, and your own defences are going to be able to deal with this. That's a really difficult conversation to have. It's far easier just to give the prescription for the antibiotics. It is, and I'm certainly in my earlier days in practice, I was very guilty of thinking this person seems really quite sick so i'll give a an even longer course of antibiotics yes and and really you know there was probably never any rationale for that but sometimes yeah. it's hard to shake off old habits yeah do you ever get people complaining that they've been given too long a course of antibiotics no and again not that we should be treating you know, you know it's not defensive medicine isn't the best medicine by any means but um, yeah, yeah, it's far more common that, that they're complaining about either not being given antibiotics for what was patently a viral infection, or occasionally that, that the course wasn't long enough because the next GP they saw told them told them so. Yeah, yeah. The the other thing is that people come in and say, "I need a ten day course because that's what I've always had and that's what always works for me." Um, if I take a shorter course, then it comes back. Yeah, that's again a difficult conversation to navigate try the short course 
here's a back pocket prescription for more just in case you might need it type of thing but i would be guilty of that mm, it's it is hard and i think the because the natural course of a viral upper respiratory tract infection probably is about a week you know that they're going to perceive the not being completely right at five days as being a failure of therapy um yeah. but yeah i think just ultimately it's you know maybe as as the population you know the, our patients become more aware of the the downside of poor antibiotic stewardship for them and their children and their grandchildren in mm. terms of of resistant bugs etc um there'll well, be a better understanding think, yeah i think people are far more aware of the the gut uh, biome as well and the impact of, of antibiotics on that that they you know, we it's a far fewer people seem to resist the idea that they don't need antibiotics these days than ever used to you know, it used to be an absolute assumption i've got a sniffly nose i need antibiotics um, whereas now often in the conversation i was like that's great i'm glad i don't need antibiotics um so and i think yeah. that's a great the, the gut biome but which I've, you know is evolving and just seems to be linked to so many many aspects of one's health and and undoubtedly gets altered with a course of antibiotics that's a great great you know argument or counter counter to um to give to somebody who's you know maybe maybe requesting or demanding the antibiotics and it's you know there's an article in the latest new zealand listener on gut biome which i found totally fascinating so it's out there in the in the popular press as well yeah back to women's health menopause hormone therapy mht um yeah. so the, the uh, recent british journal of general practice gave a really helpful and succinct summary of key considerations for primary care physicians when prescribing mht uh, including a really helpful algorithm uh, which i've put a link to and i'm just going to bring up um, basically just reminding the, the sorts of things reminding us the sorts of things to consider in that consultation when somebody comes in to talk about mht and what the options are depending on the, the patient's individual circumstance past gynecological history uh, intact uterus etc and symptoms so basically um summarize four key considerations is mht appropriate including contraindications which preparation and regime are required what is the most appropriate route and dose to start on and is testosterone is testosterone or vaginal estrogen cream required in addition so it's quite applicable to new zealand other than some of the drug names listed are different and not all formulations discussed are available here but the it's certainly a useful one page reminder of just the issues to consider during those mm. mht consultations so last month pharmac did announce uh, a procurement opportunity that might result or is likely to result in a wider range of transdermal estrogen products uh, becoming available including a topical estrogen gel and with respect to testosterone therapy and menopause the good fellow unit have a really um, useful resource on the topic and it refers to a commercially manufactured but so it's not a compounded topical testosterone gel called androtheme uh, which can be prescribed off label under section 29 it's 153 dollars for 100 days treatment at a standard dose uh, and i'm not sure how that compares with the compounded products that some of the alternative menopause treatment providers get us to prescribe so this one's commercially commercially prepared commercially available but yeah 153 bucks for about 100 days at a standard dose gosh i, I need to learn more about that um I, I don't think i've ever prescribed testosterone except for 
people with testosterone deficiency. Yeah, so this, I mean, I think it's around those women with postmenopausal with the decreased libido uh, as a prominent factor. Yeah, it's, I mean, the... Is it, the, is it, is it medicalizing a normal well, phase of life or... Yeah, is, I mean, we could say that about many, many things, couldn't we? Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, I need to learn more. But yeah, good links to the to the resources there. Anyways, um, number seven is um, our dip into nursery rhymes, the Goldilocks oh, yes. approach to measuring blood pressure. Was Goldilocks very... a nursery? Was it, no, it wasn't a nursery rhyme. It's a um, what would you call it? Fairy tale. Fairy tale. Yeah. Fairy tale. Um, so uh, issue eighty one of Bre- uh, Best Practice Bulletin looked at the importance of having a variety of blood pressure cuff sizes available at your fingertips. Mm-hmm. And it looked at a, a randomized trial published in JAMA, uh, which looked at the blood pressure measurements using an automated device on 195 people in the community with a wide range of mid-arm circumferences uh, and used a regular cuff irrespective of the, the arm circumference. Sounds like most clinics. <laughs> yeah, many clinics. So, <laughs> yeah. so use of a regular cuff so it resulted in a 3.6 on average millimetre lower systolic blood pressure reading amongst individuals who actually required a small cuff. But in contrast, among individuals requiring a large BP cuff, there was a, almost a five millimetre difference. And in those who really needed the extra large cuff, use of a regular cuff resulted in an um, average 20 millimetre higher systolic blood pressure reading. Very wow. significant for those people with the big arms. So it concluded that many home monitoring devices, for instance, which only come with a standard sized cuff, may not be appropriate for the patient. Mm. Uh, but they've also produced, American Medical Association have produced a pamphlet guide to correct cuff size collection based on um, circumference. And I've included a copy of that resource right. in, in the notes. Uh, so I don't know that many of us would have four sizes. I have three sizes, but yeah, the, uh, theoretically we should have small adult, adult, large adult, and extra large adult uh, at our fingertips. Yeah, I don't know about at our fingertips, but because uh, the, they're often the different size cuffs are often on a, a centralized tray somewhere because you know they're sort of shared out between a large number of people rather than every every room having four different cuffs in they often everybody will have the regular one and then if you need the child's one this is where you go for it and of course then that just gets lost somewhere yep. around the or somebody's using it when you want to use, or they left it in their room after the, using it and you've got yeah. you're 20 minutes behind and you just need to get that blood pressure taken yeah um yeah, yeah. i don't know how expensive they are uh, they're certainly available from the the usual medical supply suppliers but uh I'm but sure it, it's you know it, just the twenty millimeters of mercury difference. It would have the wrong cuff, the small, too small a cuff, and somebody with a larger arm. You know that that's really significant. You yeah. can't, you can't, you just can't pretend that you're getting an accurate blood pressure if you're not using the right size cuff. They might be on pills that they don't need to be. Yeah. Uh, and finally, just a um, new questionnaire that might be helpful in primary care. Um, so it's from issue. 212 of the Respiratory Research Review, uh, looking at a recent study that's validated a short six-item tool, Breathing Vigilance Questionnaire, or BreatheVQ, which is uh, an aid to assessing dysfunctional breathing. So the reviewer notes that dysfunctional breathing is common in clinical practice. Um, It's that sensation of shortness of breath that can't be explained by organic disease. 
has an overlap with many conditions, including anxiety, sometimes asthma, and post-COVID syndrome or long COVID. So previously, the Nijmegen questionnaire uh, has been used to assess dysfunctional breathing, usually by the respiratory physios. But this uh, six-question one is, I think, a bit more, a bit easier to use in primary care. So it's just a like, like a Likert scale for, I closely monitor how difficult my breathing feels. I become alarmed when I experience breathlessness or tightness in my chest. I'm highly aware of small changes in how my breathing feels. I feel as if I'm more aware of my breathing than other people. When something happens that affects my breathing, I'm anxious to work out how breathless I am, and I worry about fluctuations in my breathing. And I think a score of 25 or over is highly suggestive of dysfunctional um, or d- disordered breathing uh, or hypervigilant breathing. Yeah, lots of anxiety there, isn't there? That's right. Yeah. yeah. So health pathways section on dyspnea gives further advice on on assessment of patients with persistent breathlessness following recovery from COVID-19 who don't have known respiratory disease. Um, so this is just going off on a slight tack given that um, long COVID was mentioned and mm. breathing, dysfunctional breathing following low COVID, uh, long COVID or associated with long COVID is apparently quite common. And in the health pathways, there's a recommendation to consider completing the one MSTS test the one-minute sit-to-stand test oh, yes. protocol. So there's yeah. a, a link to that. And there's also a, uh, a link to the Goodfellow Unit podcast on dysfunctional breathing disorders and understanding breathing pattern disorders. The latter one actually hasn't been recorded yet. It's scheduled for 17th of October. Nice. Um, but again, might be uh, something quite interesting to have a look at. Yeah. Uh, so with that last breath, that's the end of the snippets. September. Very good. Very nice ending there, Dave, with your last breath. Hopefully not your last breath. There's plenty, plenty more to come. <laughs> there. Now, that's absolutely fantastic. I don't know how you, how you do it. It's um, the, the range of reading and, and information that you share is just phenomenal. So you talk, we talked about assessing capacity. You gave us a reminder about the HPV changes and links to the education around there which i strongly encourage people to do talked about opioid prescribing and the shift again to one month prescribing that's uh that's ahead of us iron injections and a just a warning i suppose that you know these aren't benign this isn't a benign therapy by any means there's all sorts of complications including hypophosphatemia that we need to think about there's good evidence around a five-day as opposed to a 10-day course for community-acquired pneumonia. And in, children, in children. In children, in children. And uh, link to menopause hormone treatment uh, algorithm and uh, decision sort of support tool. The Goldilocks zone for blood pressure and using the right cuff for the right person gives you the right blood pressure. And then um, that link to the questionnaire about uh, hyperventilation or you know disorder dysfunctional breathing uh, which again i i'd agree i i think i see very commonly in in practice and it's quite it's one of those conditions where you you say well could this possibly be what's going on and you just sort of see people going oh my god no absolutely that's exactly what's happening to me the, I suppose the difficulty I have is is with the treatment uh, interventions with dysfunctional breathing. It's quite, it's 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 not the easiest thing to uh, to then manage. I think quite often shining a light on it, giving people awareness of what's happening, is the first step in it. Do you find um, respiratory physios 
easy to access, Dave? Uh, yeah, not. I mean, uh, they're certainly around. It's the financial barrier that's the hardest one. I mean, very. I think difficult to access and through the public system, much easier through the private system. But of course, there's a cost attached. There used to be a book by a woman called Diana Bradley, um, the hyperventilation syndrome, um, which I haven't seen on the shelves for a while. But I used to, I used to recommend that all the time. Yeah, and again, I'm sure there there are now online courses, and things you can do. Yeah, uh, I mean, online resources for patients. I, th- I think the, the the classic hyperventilator that was always explained to me was the aerobics. The the girl from aerobics who always had a water bottle and was sipping it all the time, and who was fine when she was exercising, but when she wasn't exercising, would experience shortness of breath. Right. And something about the water bottle and the sipping all the time is is part of the the, the clinical picture. Okay, right. Oh, well, thanks, Dave. Absolutely wonderful. Assuming that you're still breathing next month, we'll um, meet we'll again. again. <laughs> That's great. Might be famous last words. Okay, thanks, Dave. Thanks for listening. Please like and share this podcast if you found it useful. The show notes on the podcast website contain links to all the resources that we discussed. A video version of this podcast is available on the Pinnacle Practice website at pinnacle.co.nz. Ka kite anō.